We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Welcome everybody back. This is Steve with Dr. Alan Finister on our series on the church councils. I think this is the sixth ecumenical council, the third council of Constantinople. Yes. And uh, we were going to put it in with the second council, but we didn't want to go through the whole weekend. So we made it its own thing. <laughs> Alan, Dr. Alan, thank you again for your time and uh, definitely the education that you're giving us. So please have <laughs> at it. What is the third council? Or what led okay. up to it? <laughs> so, um, uh, thank you for having me on again. Um, uh, after the epic last time, sorry about that. <laughs> and also, I I should apologise because last time I I um, I, uh, I uh, mentally uh, um, uh, whatnoted and, and referred to Pope Simplicius when I meant Pope Silvarius. Pope Sim Simplicius lived about eighty years earlier. There we are. <laughs> Apologies to Pope Simplicius and Pope Silvarius. Very. We'll um, later. <laughs> um uh yeah so um uh third constantinople well so basically um uh justinian uh the emperor who was the star of the show last time really he uh his his bullying of pope Vigilius into agreeing to the three to condemning the three chapters that we talked about last time to try and reassure them and offsites that uh, the, the Catholics really, 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 really do reject Nestorianism, and we're not just joking. Um, uh, didn't work, um, uh, despite all the efforts and all that. So, so I don't wish to demoralise you about having listened for an hour and forty minutes to the previous council, but it didn't. Um, yeah, it didn't. Uh, it didn't convince them off sites. Um, it might have done if it had happened a little bit earlier, but by the time it did happen, um, the Monophysites had set up their own parallel hierarchy about a little bit more than 10 years before that so um so they already they've now become a different a separate church uh whereas so so all the way up until sh not long before the second council of constantinople the monophysites had um had been fighting to get control of the church mm. and they thought of um of the council of chalcedon as being like one of these naughty fake Arian councils, uh, or the or, or the way we think of the Second Council of Ephesus in the fifth century, um, uh, and that, that they would get overthrown by some triumphant council that would fix it all. And they were imagining this future council being in the way we imagine Chalcedon as having as having fixed 
the problems created by the Second Council of Ephesus, they thought there was going to be some equivalent uh, that was going to fix the problems they imagined had been created by Chalcedon. And so in a way, that's what Justinian was trying to give them in the Second Council of Constantinople without betraying Chalcedon. But for them, it had become such an obsession that, that Chalcedon was wrong that they that, that, that unless Chalcedon was actually repudiated, they weren't going to they weren't going to take it, and we could never do that. So um, so although Justinian uh, again with very naughty methods uh, that, that one cannot possibly approve of uh, brought it about that a Nestorian interpretation of of Chalcedon was not possible anymore. Um, uh, he um, he was unable to convince them off sites. For them, they'd already now were invested in their own line of bishops, and they and they they put too much prestige uh, into attacking Chalcedon that anything which retained Chalcedon they they, they weren't going to be able to cope with. So so the problem was not solved. Um, now, um, uh, so that's the sort of ecclesiastical background. So, so by the time the problem which causes the need for Constantinople three in six eighty to six eighty one is the um, is uh, arises from another attempted botched imperial solution to the problem of the Monophysites, right? Which is going to occur uh, sort of um, fifty odd years before. Constantinople three dominate the empire. Excuse me. Uh, for um, for decades, and uh, and then have to be fixed by another ecumenical council. So that's the um, ecclesiastical background. But there's a very significant political background, and that they overlap because the emperors, you know, felt it was very strongly felt it was their duty that God should be worshipped properly in the manner that he had he is appointed, and that so long as the empire was divided. Um, and there was a bunch of people holding out and disagreeing about what the proper manner to worship God is. That would um, that would not incur divine favour, and there would be trouble in the empire. So that so they 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 very strongly felt that they needed to um, they needed to resist an, uh, a permanently accepting division. And um, now uh, th this this impression was particularly reinforced prior to the creation of this new heresy which we're about to discuss and the reason why is because if you remember the emperor justinian one of the major features of his reign was his reconquest of lots of areas of the west mm -hmm. which had been lost to the barbarians and the three big areas that he reconquered were um, north africa uh, roughly the modern countries of tunisia and algeria which were, it surprised us to hear this nowadays, but were then the breadbasket of the Western Roman Empire, so they were very important. Um, uh, Italy, which was, of course, tremendously important because, for symbolic reasons, because uh, it, you know, it's the, the, the original home of the empire, um, and it was important for Justinian, as a first-language Latin speaker, to assert that this is still the same Roman Empire and Latin still has the same role, although he was kind of pushing it a bit at this point because i mean i mean even his own law code the, the novels which is the the bits that he added his own original laws as opposed to the previous laws which he codified um are all written in greek so that shows that you know i mean okay yes he wants to assert you know that there's still the roman empire and it's still latin is still very important but when it comes to it yes people have to understand the law so he issues them in greek um and then the other places is, is uh as a uh, quite a, not not a majority but a big chunk of spain 
on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, he managed to reconquer towards the end of his reign. So, so he got quite close to uh, to to enclosing the Mediterranean again uh, with Roman territory. He didn't quite get all the way there, but he had a horrible time of it. Um, there was a terrible plague in um, six four what sorry not six one five four one. Um, called the plague of justinian which completely you know weakened and, and undermined his reconquest efforts and 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 he had to buy off the persians i think we talked about that a bit and the persians reneged and invaded when the plague happened um and then uh, shortly after so so shortly after he died uh, there was this massive invasion of uh, the lombards into italy his successor justin the second um sort of it all went to his head a bit he assumed that the stuff that Justinian had been slogging for and laboring and bribing barbarians and Persians to achieve for decades and decades was just like how things would normally be and uh, so when the the, the 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 particularly vexatious barbarians of that period called the Avars turned up for their annual uh, pile of gold for agreeing not to invade uh, across the Danube, he told them to get lost and how dare they address a Roman emperor in this way. And and this was a catastrophe. And they, they started invading the Balkan provinces, of the empire again, and it caused us a, a sort of domino effect of this often happens, but a domino effect of one barbarian group crashing into another barbarian group. And the, the, the upshot of it was that these Lombards poured down into Italy and, um, and and they never they never got rid of them basically so so the the Byzantines as as they get called by historians but one has to be careful about this because they're not real they nobody called them that at the time it's a invented term they just referred to as Romans mm. um, they uh, they they clung on to southern Italy and sort of held on to Rome but their control of Rome was very shaky and Rome ended up being like the sort of East Berlin of the dark ages you know it was sort of uh, stuck out there sort of nominally under under roman sovereignty but surrounded by barbarians and uh, um and uh, ravenna uh, which is um in northern italy it was the, it was their their military the military hq for the province of italy during beleaguered times when the romans are doing well uh, the military hq for northern italy would be milan because that's where you want to be in order to quickly bat away uh, barbarian invasions and and, and 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 start your invasions into barbarian territory but if you think that you're not necessarily going to be able to deal with the barbarian invasions you don't want to live in Milan because that's much too exposed so you you retreat off to Ravenna which is surrounded by impenetrable marshes um, so as the barbarians turn up you've got a chance of waiting them out location uh, location location yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah so the um so, so Italy ends up being a bit weird. So you've got large chunks of it domin dominated by the Lombards, um, but the south is still pretty much held on to by the Romans, and they've got their little enclave in Ravenna, um, and um, and they have their uh, and Rome is is sort of still run by by the emperor in Constantinople, but his 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 hold over it is sufficiently weak. And the commitment of the people to the Pope is so great, both because he ends up being the one who's really organising the feeding of the people. There was always a... Rome always needed uh, to be as big as it was. I mean, it wasn't so anything like so big by this point because it had had such a terrible time for several hundred years. But, but in at the height of the of the empire, Rome was like you know a million plus people, and it was the largest city in the world. And it wasn't that wasn't sustainable. 
uh, as it were, without government intervention. So, so the population of Rome got free grain, uh, which was in fact imported from uh, from North Africa, from the breadbasket of the Western Empire, and there were big, big uh, government, uh, a big government port um, at, at the port of Ostia to take it all in, and. Um, so, um, but the, the, that was, you know, the government, the Roman government's ability to do those kind of things was 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 very shaky by this point. So, uh, but the, and the Pope, of course, is still uh, elected by the people of Rome, as well as the clergy in the good old-fashioned, proper patristic way of appointing bishops. And so he was their guy, you know, and, and he was the one who was actually looking after their interests. So, so to a significant extent, although he was not officially, wouldn't be officially until the middle of the 8th century, the ruler of, of the actual ruler of Rome, the Pope was still kind of seen as the ruler of Rome um, uh, by the population. Um, and, and this is going to come into some of these doctrinal questions that, that come into Constantinople 3. Uh, so, um, so anyway, so uh, Justinian's reconquest is sort of clinging on by its fingernails. Um, and uh, and the, the emperors for the rest of, of, of the 6th century are uh, they're, they're they're like sort of it's like a, a painful to watch boxing match. I'm not a great connoisseur of boxing matches, but you got, you got to imagine that it looked like you know before Justinian came along, it looked like that you know they were they they were out. You know they, they weren't going to last much longer, and then suddenly there's this big revival. But but one big knockout punch could really take down the empire. Um, but 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 they they look they might cling on, but they might not. You know it, it's it was. Rocky. Yeah, he gets his possible. brains kicked out. He comes back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's a series a series of emperors, uh, more or less in. They're all in legitimate succession from Justinian, uh, of more uh, greater or lesser blood relation to him. Uh, but but they're legitimately appointed and succeed from him, uh, going uh, down to the end of the century. And then, and then at the very end of the century, there's 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 em Emperor Morris, five eight two to six o two. And uh, he's quite an impressive guy. He doesn't have a lot of resources at his disposal, but he manages to win, you know. And he and he he's um, he's he's doing okay. And and the and uh, and the problem is it's kind of paper thin. Any big reversal is not going to be easily dealt with. But but um, and he uh, but but he manages to secure the borders and keep things going and hold on to to most of what Justinian. Had reconquered. There's still big problems in Italy, but but I mean, um, and and he uh, he he. One of his brilliant masterstrokes is that he there's a Persian civil war, um, and um, and there's sort of two candidates. One of whom's kind of the legitimate candidate. He's the sort of son of the previous Persian king, and uh, the other one is the one who looks like he's going to win and is actually in control of the capital, and uh, and he offers quite a good deal to Morris uh, to to just sort of you know perhaps arrange a little accident because the because the, the the legitimate one uh Krusu the second uh has has fled to the roman empire and uh, there's no real there's no real um uh there's no obvious reason why you'd back him other than that you know he's he's actually living there but but the other guy looks like he's going to win whatever happens and and he's offering you a pretty good deal to um to uh, hand over or do away with his rival. Yeah, so I you, you can now refuse. 
<laughs> well, it's not quite. It's 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 more of a it's more of a temptation because <laughs> I mean it is uh, it is um, it's not because he Justinian isn't under threat from the other guy, but but the deal is kind of on the table. You know, you would have thought a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But anyway, but he uh, but uh, but some. Um, but Morris decides no, no, no. He 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 makes this very, very difficult call, but he gets it right. Um, well, at least it seems like he gets it right. It it blows up in everyone's faces later on for reasons we'll get to. But but he um he backs the the, the legitimate guy who's doing badly, and um and he eventually succeeds and manages to put him on the Persian throne. And of course that is 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 much better because this guy owes him everything. Whereas the other guy just would have kind of owed him a bit of a favour, but it wouldn't have been that big a deal. So he gets loads of territory back, and and a really and a, and, and the Persians paying the Romans money, which hasn't happened for ages, and and um, and the um, and and the uh, the Persian king who uh, now sees Morris as his adopted father, and uh, and and so I mean it's it's great from a Roman point of view. They finally got the Persians under control, which they haven't had. I mean, even Justinian only had them under control for brief periods by paying them huge sums of money. So this is a, uh, this is a, and it means that the Romans can deal with their problems on their other frontiers uh, without worrying so much about the Persians. So, so Morris has has quite a lot of success, and um, he's also a pal of Gregory the Great, which is always a good sign. So, so Gre- Gregory the Great, the greatest pope of all time. Um, uh, he, uh, um, you know, I'm biased because he converted the English, but but um, uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> never he is. Guessed. <laughs> Sorry, say again. Would have never guessed. I don't know why. <laughs> <I'm talking. laughs> um, but he was he was papal ambassador to Constantinople uh, and, and and knew Morris before he was pope, obviously. Um, and and he he knew Morris, and uh, so and and so Morris, um, uh, yeah, started really. Um, cracking down on the barbarians on the other frontiers um because he he could now that the, he'd done this brilliant uh, diplomatic military maneuver with the persians and um but eventually it all blew up in his face because in in 602 he uh, he won a load of victories against the barbarians on the other side of the danube and he decided to um in order to rub their noses in and make a show of strength uh, that the Romans are back and they're scary and you'll jolly well shut up and do as you're told. Uh, he told his soldiers to camp uh, for the winter on the other side of the Danube, on the non-Roman side of the Danube, just to show, you know, we could just sit here and do what we like because we're the Romans. You know, it's, it's like the, uh, it's like, like um, US presidents just blowing things up with drones all the way around the world and, you know, sovereignty, whatever. Who cares? We're the we're the Americans. We can do what we like, um, and uh, so this is the you know sort of there's equivalent a, statement. There's a, there was a comedian long ago. I remember he was talking about the, just exactly what you just said. And he goes, he's standing outside the plane. He's looking down, and you hear a voice down. There, Why are you doing that? And he looks down because we can, and he throws out the <laughs> <a> catch. <laughs> So, but the problem is that Morris had a difficult, uh, you know, because the Romans are only just got the resources. It's just because they had this stroke of luck with the Persians that they're able to get away with this. And they've only just got the resources to, be able to, to hold on to with their fingernails what Justinian reconquered. And um, and they, um, and they and one of the problems that Morris has had throughout his reign is that he hasn't had enough money to pay the army. And he keeps trying to kind of chip down the uh you know the the deal you know make make the pay a bit lower 
um, you know, um, make them buy their own uniforms, things, things like this. You know, not that they had uniforms, but their own kit, um, and uh, um, and and all these various different methods of trying to uh, save money so that he can keep the show on the road. So in fact, he's not that popular with the troops, despite the fact that he's a bit of a winner. They're kind of like, you know, he's, he's pushing them to do, you know, go above and beyond all the time. And now he's making, although it's kind of like, a oh, look how hard we are, we're, we're camping for the winter in enemy territory. But in fact, they're, they're not that keen on camping for the winter in enemy territory. And, um, and they revolt against him. And uh, they put this, they, and they managed to get to Constantinople. And they put this guy Phocas um, on the throne in Constantinople. And uh, Morris is caught on the hop. And he gets captured, and uh, and Phocas has all of his family killed, all his sons killed in front of him. And it's uh, yeah, it's pretty awful. And then they finally kill him. Apparently, he was completely impassable. Wow. When 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 he just he just stood there with a with a with a sort of face of grim resignation while his because I mean he knew there was like no way out at this point, and uh, so. You know, Phocas was not not a nice guy from the looks of things. Sounds and, good. Um, yeah. <laughs> And it was the first. Uh, it was the first um, uh, usurpation of the throne for a very long time. There'd been a, s- a sequence of legitimate successions of emperors since all the way back. I think uh, Zeno was driven off the throne uh, back in the fifth um, century for a little bit, and then he got himself back on again. And uh, I think that was the last time there had been a usurpation of the throne. So things had been, you know, there'd been a legal succession of power for a long time. So this, and then of course it always causes serious problems when you have these usurpations, because then you have, um, uh, then you have uh, civil wars and, and all that kind of thing and lots of um, uncertainty. But this, this, this was off the scale in the, in, in, in the level of disaster that it caused. And uh, there's this, there's this sad, but terribly interesting letter that, that Gregory the Great writes to Phocas. Um, and he probably doesn't know the details of the usurpation at this point, because obviously the de- the um, usurper doesn't usually send out a press release saying, "Oh yeah, I've randomly illegally seized power and murdered the murdered the previous emperor and his children." That 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 Do that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, but but Gregory clearly thinks this guy is, is not you know is this isn't going to be good, and uh, and he's he's trying to remind him of his uh, remind him of his. Of, of how Roman emperors are supposed to behave. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting phrase. He says some, um, cause it reminds you of, of the fact that the Roman empire was, was a Republic. I mean, the word Republic has, has, has come to mean lots of different things over the centuries, but, but, uh, but the, but it was a law based society in which uh, hereditary succession was possible. But it, it, but it had to be sort of legally agreed upon. You didn't. It wasn't. Auto, it wasn't. Uh, uh, you, you didn't. You weren't just the emperor because your dad was the emperor. Your dad would have had to arrange it legally that you'd succeed beforehand. Let me say. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and there was no. And it wasn't in itself hereditary, um, even though there was a preference given to the son of the previous emperor, um, and um, uh, and. Yeah, so Gregory the Great writes to Phocas and reminds him uh, the kings of the nations, by which he means the barbarian rulers who of of the missing bits of the empire, are the lords of slaves, 
but the emperor of the republic is the lord of free men he reminds it so so he's kind of trying to remind him that that, that you know uh that, that you know he's supposed to be a legal ruler ruling through the rule of law etc etc but um uh this is uh forlorn forlorn hope on the part of poor old gregory but anyway um so um focus uh you know butchering people and getting paranoid about his his position because people aren't very impressed with him and he's a usurper and so it's not very nice and a, a civil war kicks off inside the empire and the um the governor of north africa heraclius the elder um decides that he's going to get rid of focus but but he's um he's uh, he's too old to do it himself so he gets his son heraclius the younger to go off and lead uh troops to try and remove focus which eventually he does um so by the time uh by by 610 focus uh, is gone and heraclius the younger is installed in constantinople and there's a new patriarch of constantinople um sergius whose reign uh, actually pretty much exactly coincides with that of, of the emperor heraclius um and uh, and and he he cooperates and, and crowns heraclius as as emperor um and heraclius has kind of the most spectacular reign really of, of almost any roman emperor um uh, he he reigns until 638 which is also the year that, that sergius dies um and um uh, but the problem is uh, it starts right from the beginning of his reign which is that when while the persians had been uh, had been curtailed and pacified by morris um uh Croesus, uh, or Croesus, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's not my Farsi isn't what it might be. Croesus um, uh, the second is is it's embarrassing for him that he's had to give away loads of territory to the Romans and that he's paying them money and 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 he's and he's supposed to be the adopted son of of the emperor and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that he needed the Roman emperor to put him on the throne, right? So although he is pacified and owes a great debt of gratitude to Morris. Um, you know, it's it's still a, a political difficulty for him that he's so obviously beholden to the Roman emperor, and uh, so when uh, Focus uh, deposes Morris and murders him, Crosu uh, the uh, second sees this as a as a as a major opportunity to undo the embarrassment. So he can now use the thing that used to pacify him, the fact that he has this great debt of gratitude to Morris, as the basis for renewed military action against the Roman Empire. He says, my adoptive father has been slain uh, in, in utter perfidy. I must avenge him, right? So this now gives him the excuse to launch a massive assault on the Roman Empire and claim that he's doing it for impeccably Roman reasons. He's not being a bad, ungrateful guy. He's, he's doing it to avenge his beloved adoptive father, Morris. Um, so uh, while Heraclius the Younger is fighting his way to Constantinople in order to uh, in order to get rid of uh, Phocas, uh, um, there's a huge new Persian war going on. So, so although one uh, sympathizes with Heraclius and very much does not sympathize with Phocas and uh, is pleased to see him got rid of. Um, the problem is it wasn't a very helpful time. I mean, it could be that if Phocas had remained the emperor, then the Roman Empire would have just been finished anyway. But 
It was certainly greatly weakened by the fact that Focus himself couldn't uh, focus, no pun intended, on the um, on uh, on the invasion from the Persians, uh, because he was having to deal with and ultimately not dealing with uh, a, 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 a an insurrection from the uh, the the the, the, um, the favoured son of the governor of North Africa. Um, so uh, so by the time Heraclius is installed in 610, the situation is very serious. Um, now, uh, um, the uh, yeah, so the um, uh, and when I say very serious, I mean we're talking very, very, very serious. So, um, so in the in the in the years that follow, um, the empire is absolutely pummeled by the Persians in a way that it had basically never been, and and this brings us back into into the reason for Constantinople three because the. Um, when we were talking about about the aftermath of Chalcedon last time, um, uh, it wasn't just the Egyptians. The main problem, the the most rooted problem, was the Egyptians, where it was a kind of national and local ecclesiastical prestige had been greatly offended by uh, the, the 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 fate of Dioscorus at Chalcedon. Um, but there was a general uh, concern in the Eastern Empire that that, that Nestorianism had somehow. Uh, secretly prevailed through Chalcedon, and um, uh, and even if Justinian had probably, uh, to a large extent, dealt with uh, that suspicion with um, Constantinople II, uh, it was now entrenched, and it wasn't just entrenched in Egypt. So, in fact, and I think I also mentioned last time that whereas initially it was like you know you couldn't predict in advance who was going to object to Chalcedon, after a while it became the more the people who didn't speak Greek as their first language. So so the 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 the, the ones who were less wired into the imperial culture, so the ones who spoke Aramaic or um, or uh, or Coptic. Um, and uh, the um, so in fact uh, all of the area. Um, of what we would now call Syria, Lebanon, uh, Israel, uh, Egypt, all of that, the, all those parts of the empire were were kind of annoyed with the Roman imperial government uh, in a, in a big way because of these this big religious division, and and there were very large, you know, there were there were plenty of people who agreed with Chalcedon and agreed with uh, Constantinople too as well, um, but the but there was a very significant, uh, who knows if they were my minority or my majority, who didn't. Um, so to this day, the uh, Catholics in that area of the world, who, um, uh, not Egypt, but the rest of those places I mentioned, the Catholics who use the Byzantine rite, um, uh, who are probably the majority of Byzantine rite Christians in some of those countries, um, uh, are called the Melkites, and uh, the the Melkites. Uh, it comes from Malek, uh, which is uh, Aramaic for king. Uh, you'll you'll notice the word comes up quite a bit in the Passion of the Christ because um, obviously it's done in Aramaic, um, and uh, and so it means uh, the ones who are loyal to the emperor in Constantinople, as opposed to uh, the ones who who don't agree with him. So it was very. So you can see just from that name that the, the question of loyalty to the regime and the question of whether you accepted Chalcedon were very strongly connected, and so the Persians were able to take all of that territory basically um, off the Romans, which had never happened before. So they they um, 
they 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 took the Holy Land and they took Egypt, and that was a big problem because as as uh, North Africa, meaning Tunisia, Algeria, uh, as they now are, was for the Western Empire as breadbasket, so um, so Egypt was for Constantinople. So Egypt was the if even today, fifty percent of the population of North Africa lives on the bank of the Nile, um, the banks of the Nile. So um, uh, and. Um, so the, the the grain subsidy that was that, that Constantine had instituted in in analogy with uh, Rome for Constantinople was coming from Egypt. So so to lose Egypt, so to lose Jerusalem, which they did, was uh, obviously a horrendous sign of divine disfavor and and a calamity of the first order. And to lose Egypt was a catastrophe uh, from the point of view of feeding the population of Constantinople. So things things were going extremely badly. Um, until the beginning of the uh, of the um, 620s so um, uh, I mean they were still going very bad so it, it got to the point where the Persians kind of got together with the Avars you, these are these vexatious barbarians in the uh, in the Balkans uh, Constantinople's being attacked um, from one side by the barbarians from the European side it's being attacked by the Persians from the other side they've lost the holiest city in the world they've lost the Lord's tomb they've, they've lost the the most important and richest province of the Eastern Empire which is Egypt um, and a lot of this on the so partly they they may uh, Heraclius may well have thought this was a sign of divine disfavor for not having uh, ensured uniform orthodoxy in the empire and also um, on the human level he may have thought well these people are not resisting like they should be because they don't like the imperial government anyway because of the row over Chalcedon so um, so the um, uh, and, and in fact, the Persians were very, uh, very careful to um, to make sure that they installed monophysite uh, bishops in all the places that they went to. Now, the funny thing is, in fact, that that uh, Persia up to this point was the refuge of the Nestorians. The Nestorians were complete nobody liked the Nestorians in the empire, so they had uh, they'd fled to to Persia, and um, and in fact, uh, the Persian Christians had had a bit of a problem, which is that they um, that they had always enjoyed a reasonably okay time up until the conversion of Constantine, because they were so brutally persecuted in the Roman Empire that the Persians thought, well, they can't possibly be a problem because the Romans don't like them. So you, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So 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 we'll leave the Christians alone. But then once Constantine converted in 312, um, and the Roman Empire more and more became the Christian Empire. Um, the Persians looked more and more askance upon the Christians in 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 the empire, uh, in their empire, and um, so eventually, when uh, and partly because the the biggest cultural influence on Persia was the um, was the uh, was Antiochian Christianity, the, the the Patriarchate of Antioch, and that had been although there was a very significant um, uh, bunch of of, of Monophysites there, as we've been discussing. Um, uh, the, the Nestorian heresy was more associated with the, the theological tradition of Antioch than anywhere else. And so there was already a predisposition uh, to fall into Nestorianism on the part of the, um, of, of the Christians of the, of the Persian Empire. Um, there, must, there was an added temptation to take that side of the argument because it meant that they could say, hey, look, we're not in communion with the Roman Christians, so so we can't possibly be secret traitors and, and fifth columnists. So so in fact, 
Persia was the center of Nestorianism. And, uh, and, and when Krosu uh, 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 took the true cross, the relic of the true cross from Jerusalem and brought it back to Sestaphon, uh, the Persian capital, um, the, um, uh, the, the, the Nestorian Christians were all kind of, hey, we've got the true cross now, yay. Uh, so, but, if, but, when the, but when the Persians were, when the Persians were actually occupying those regions of the empire, um, the, um, uh, the, um, the, the, they put monophysite bishops, the opposite heresy, in charge of, of all of these ter territories because they knew there was a huge minority and possibly the majority of the population in these territories were monophysites, especially in Egypt, I'm sure it was the majority. Um, and, and therefore they were going to get as much goodwill from, from a large section of the population as they could. Um, Just to clarify for anybody that's going to ask a question, can you give the difference between the last two heresies? Sure, yeah. So the Nestorians are the ones who think that Jesus of Nazareth and the second person of the Trinity are close personal friends, but they're not really the same person. Uh, again, caricature, but that's roughly what it is. Whereas the Monophysites um, uh, think that uh, the nature of Christ, Christ's human nature was just sort of absorbed into his divine nature. Uh, when 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 Christ, Christ uh, the eternal Logos, assumed uh, human nature, but then it didn't really survive being assumed. Um, again, that the the Miaphysites, as they prefer to be called, would would probably say that was a caricature as well. But you know, um, it would take too long to go over exactly <laughs> what all the nuances. Um, uh, and and the and the, the key thing with this dispute, of course, is that again, it's asymmetrical because the Chalcedonians, the Catholics, they think that. Really, the the quarrel with the Monophysites is a matter of words, um, whereas the um, uh, whereas the, the Monophysites are convinced partly because once you picked one of these fights and you kept it going for a long time, it becomes difficult to admit that it wasn't really necessary because then you're 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 kind of dissing your ancestors so so it becomes a, a bit of a problem so so they insist that it is a real substantial theological problem whereas the chalcedonians are kind of annoyed because they think that it isn't a real substantial problem and now it's become more about nationalism and hard feelings and entrenched bitterness and uh, the um uh uh yes the um uh i was to say something about that um chalcedonians um uh, oh yes, that's right. I was in an Uber a few, uh, like about six months ago. I think six months might be a bit longer ago. And the Uber driver was an uh, Ethiopian fellow, an Ethiopian Christian. Of course, Ethiopia, very ancient Christian uh, territory. Um, uh, it's not clear exactly how long ago it became Christian, but of course, then we have the Ethiopian eunuch, who's a minister mm -hmm. in the Ethiopian government in the Acts of the Apostles, converting to Christianity. And... Um, and uh, the Ethiopians have traditionally said that they, the Queen of Sheba, uh, was was the, was the ruler of Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and um, so that so that there was a pre-existing Jewish monotheist tradition in uh, in Ethiopia, and then uh, and then they converted to Christianity, and certainly in the time of Justinian, there was a very um, impressive uh, Ethiopian ruler, Caleb of Aksum, um, the Kingdom of Aksum, which was was the the, the Ethiopian. Uh, regime in those days was was very impressive and, and quite extensive and there were some very impressive ruins in Axon there and uh, but they because they 
their main just like the the persian christians main source of christianity was was from antioch so the the main connection with the rest of the church that the ethiopians had was down the nile because one of the sources of the nile is in ethiopia mm. in fact there's a big row going on i believe at the moment between the ethiopians and the egyptians because ethiopians are planning to build a big dam uh, to <laughs> and, uh, to get all the nice silty nile waters for themselves and and, uh, and the egyptians are freaking out um, but so uh, but the um uh, but the um uh, yes, so the, um, uh, but this Ethiopian Uber driver, because uh, I was going to the seminary where I work and, and, and he, uh, he, um, he was, uh, he was an Ethiopian uh, from the, the ancient Ethiopian church, which because of its connections with Egypt has been monophysite for many, 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 many hundreds of years, a uh, thousand and a bit, obviously. Um, and, uh, and he said, "Oh yeah, you, you, you lot, you know, the Catholics, you're, you're the ones who deny that Mary's the mother of God, aren't you? And I was, I was really taken aback by that, right? Um, because, of course, I mean, uh, we obviously, we absolutely do not uh, deny that Our Lady is the Mother of God. But you could, but from the Monophysite point of view, because they just don't accept the Chalcedon is not just Nestorianism. So for them, you know, when we say that Mary is the Mother of God, we, we don't really mean it. As far as the, as far as the Chalcedon, as far as the Monophysites are concerned. So I was really impressed at the theological sophistication of the error implied in the statement by the by still the, goes <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. so anyway yes so um uh so uh the empire is in a terrible state we're, we're now at the beginning of the of the 620s the empire is a terrible state it's lost you know more than half of its remaining territory in the east uh constantinople is under severe threat um and um uh yeah so um uh heraclius decides on one last roll of the dice he basically uh, and him and sergius seem to have gone on really well so he decides to so sergius basically and it's funny actually in byzantine history in general you do not have this phenomenon of um ecclesiastics uh, wielding secular power which you do have in uh in the west because everybody ran away all the literate people with 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 a with an American Express card and uh, and a and a people carrier, bundled all their stuff into the van and got out of Dodge and went to Constantinople when 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 things went really badly with the barbarians. Um, uh, but um, and so only the bishops and the monks were left. So so the West was um, was huge areas. Of the West were, were were being kind of run by uh, ecclesiastics of one sort or another uh, because they were literate, unlike the barbarians whose main thing was like bonking people on the head with bits of wood or whatever. Um, and um, uh, and the um, uh, there's a very funny story about uh, Clovis, the first king of the Franks, when he's he's converting to Christianity and Saint Remigius. Uh, of, of uh, Reims is trying is trying to instruct him for his baptism, and uh, just gives you a sense of the the kind of level of sophistication we're dealing with with these barbarians, and um, and he's trying to explain the doctrine of the atonement to him, and Clovis listens he's getting increasingly annoyed about what's happening what the romans and the jews are doing to christ and and uh, and then then um then you know he hears about the resurrection and all that sort of stuff and he's sort of thinking about it and he says to uh, he says to remigius if i had been there with my legions he never would have been crucified and uh, and the uh, and uh, so remigius like okay let's start again from the beginning um, let's try this again <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, 
Terry so obviously you know Clovis and his his uh, similar similar friends were you know they were good at uh, you know maintaining order in a kind of basic sense but they they definitely needed a bit of help from the bishops when it came to like you know running up the balance sheet and and signing their name at the bottom of documents um, and uh, so so um so in the end the bishops end up wielding considerable temporal power in the west but in the east it generally didn't happen except at this period um so like the uh the uh, Heraclius actually has, at one point, the patriarch for quite a long time. The patriarch, the, the Melkite patriarch of of Ant Alexandria, be the governor of Egypt because you know he doesn't have that many guys to you know to go around and uh, and and keeping Egypt under control and trying to maintain some kind of ecclesiastical peace uh, a very a very overlapping questions so so uh, so this the, the, this period often gets called the byzantine dark ages because it's really the lowest point for them in terms of uh, of uh, i mean not just the period we're talking about but it extends for the rest of this century mm -hmm. um it's the lowest point for them in terms of of keeping things going but uh so um Heraclius decides on this last throw of the dice. He puts Sergius in charge of Constantinople, the patriarch, and he says, right, I'm off. I'm going to get all the remaining troops that I can scrape together from anywhere. And we're just going to uh, ignore the fact that the entire empire is in flames. We've lost most of it. And I'm just going to march straight into Persia and try and take out their capital because uh, there's nothing else I can possibly do that could could turn this round at this point. So um, so that's what he does, and amazingly, he succeeds. And it is one of the one of the most you know, amazing epic tales in the whole of Roman history. Uh, the way in which he turns round the the you know the the near extinction of the empire um, uh, uh, forever into the hands of the Persians. Uh, he turns it round into a absolute catastrophic defeat for the Persians. Um, so uh, Krosu the second is deposed. Uh, humiliating peace terms are, are conceded by the Persians. Um, uh, absolute supremacy of the of the Romans over the Persians. So so it, it's an amazing epic tale. And um, many historians have pointed out that if Heraclius had just dropped dead a couple of years after that, he would have been like one of the most amazing heroic emperors in Roman history. Um, and he, we still celebrate in the liturgy this event because um, he, he retrieves the true cross from the Persians mm -hmm. and he takes it back to Jerusalem. And uh, famously, he can't enter the city. He's, he's wearing all his glorious imperial regalia and he can't enter the city um, vested in in this, uh, the the cross becomes too heavy for him, and and he has to sort of uh, um, dress down in, as as a simple pilgrim, and then he can once again carry the cross, and he <coughs> he return, restores it to the Holy Sepulchre, and the feast of the um, exaltation of the cross was originally instituted in order to celebrate this this restoration of the true cross to Jerusalem. <coughs> so in the, in the Novus Order they've been merged, but uh, but in the uh, in the um, traditional Roman rite, uh, there's the Feast of the Invention of the Cross, which Protestants love that, because they think that means that we made it up, but the um, uh, but it means the finding of the cross, um, and the Feast of the of the Exaltation of the Cross, which is, uh, which so the Finding the Cross relates to St. Helena finding the cross, mm -hmm. um, uh, Constantine's mother, and, um, and the, um, whereas the, uh, the, the Exaltation of the Cross refers to, um, uh, refers to the restoration of the cross to Jerusalem, but um, <clears throat> but the um, uh, the funny thing is that they got mixed mixed up. They got switched round. 
um, uh, the um, uh, <clears throat> the the two feasts ended up on the wrong days, the opposite days. But anyway, they they, they were instituted nevertheless to commemorate this. Um, so um, so that sounds like big happy ending, but in fact, uh, it's all going to go wrong. And the reason why it all goes wrong is because Heraclius, uh, during his wars to roll back the Persians and, and restore the empire, he uh, he's very worried, obviously, about about the role that Monophysitism has played in in, in this terrible crisis. <clears throat> and he holds lots of theological discussions with various different bishops in different parts of the empire about um, how to um, how to fix it, and. Uh, <clears throat> He um, and in the course of these discussions, he comes up with a plan, a new theological idea to never a good thing uh, to, uh, to 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 resolve the conflict between the uh, the Monophysites and the Catholics, um, and um, uh, and it doesn't. Uh, he particularly there's a bishop called uh, Cyrus um, who he 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 bumps into um, in uh, near the Black Sea when he's campaigning in that area and he has long discussions with him uh and uh, sergius uh, this patriarch who he's such big pals with who who heroically defends uh, constantinople um sergius is also um uh, he seems to be possibly the origin of, of this scheme and uh, there are two versions of it the first version is called mono energism uh and that is uh, the idea that um there is only one operation in christ so although there are two natures the the the, the human nature is completely inert mm. and it's only the divine op divine nature really operating uh in christ <clears throat> this is a bit confusing because the word energeia in greek means one thing in aristotelian philosophy and something else in platonic philosophy but they're using it in the platonic sense and uh, to mean operation and um so um heraclius decides that he's going to pursue this mono energism thing uh as a uh, as the solution the compromise which is going to reconcile the um monophysites um and he persuades or sergius of constantinople persuades cyrus um uh, of the idea that this is going to work this is a good idea and so he is he is translated from his little sea on the edge of the black sea to uh, become patriarch of Constantinople, which is sorry, not, not Constantinople, excuse me, Alexandria, which is uh, you know a thousand plus miles away, so it's quite a, quite a cultural upheaval for him, I expect. Um, and uh, it's his job to try and uh, cut a deal with the Monophysites. Now, um, uh, as with all of these deals, really, um, it's not at all clear the Monophysites actually believe in the the thing that the imperial government is pushing. Uh, as as with the Acacian schism that we talked about last time, uh, they didn't really believe in the solution. They just thought that the solution meant that the the Melkites the, were were no longer were no longer Nestorians. They, they they thought, well, you're confused, but you're confused in a less unacceptable way than you were beforehand. So we'll we'll let it slide now. Um, and uh, and so this is this is probably their attitude to monoenergism. But um, so so the year after the glorious triumphant return of Heraclius to um, to uh, uh, Jerusalem, 
the and Egypt is also now, of course, back in Roman hands. Um, the uh, Pyrrhus, who's also made governor of uh, Egypt, uh, cuts a deal with the Monophysites to apparently resolve the Monophysite problem. And um, this is um, a, a number of other sort of long-term big changes which are going to uh, occur at this time. Um, the the emperor starts to as assume his Greek title. He's always, since the time of the New Testament, been referred to in the Greek-speaking world as Basileus um, rather than uh, Augustus, which is the uh, the Latin title for the Roman emperor. Um, but this becomes, in 729, it becomes the, his official title. And um, and it seems as if the, the efforts that Justinian and his successors have made to maintain some sort of Latinity in the empire uh, are sort of finally given up. And in fact, the, the Spanish territories are uh, which have been reconquered by Justinian are lost in the course of, of, of the war precipitated by the deposition of Morris. So, so the empire's shrunk again, it's no longer, uh, it's definitely an Eastern Mediterranean empire that the last outpost of, 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 of unambiguously Western Mediterranean um, uh, territory and ambitions in, in Spain has been, has been lost by this point. Um, so there's a shift to Greek and, and very rapidly Greek is just the purely the official language of the of the Roman Empire now, and uh, and by the time you know, a hundred years on from this point, there's there's hardly possible to find anyone in the empire who speaks a word of Latin, and a hundred years on from that, there be the the emperors making rude dismissive comments about the Latin language being barbaric, right? So 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 they really are losing touch with that side of their identity, and and one of the signs of that is this use of the of the title Basileus, uh, because it means literally king. And, uh, and and you you remember that that line I quoted from Gregory the Great about the kings of the nations versus the emperor of the republic. Mm -hmm. um, the Latins still had a kind of uh, a nervousness about the concept of of kings. It was seen as as not a the, the title emperor was supposed to be like you know a kind of republican title for for a chap who was ruling within the law and didn't just own the state. If you say I mean whereas some. Um, so 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 from a latin perspective that was a sign that the greeks were kind of giving up on their tradition now there's been a lot of a lot of uh, of uh, some interesting stuff recently about how much this might be a mirage and that the byzantine empire was more republican than than people realize and so i don't want to over egg it but it does represent a, a significant cultural moment um and of course let in uh, heartland of the empire also translates into less concern about the papacy um uh so so that that makes a big difference too um now um uh so they've got this they've got this um compromise scheme uh cobbled together the monoenarchism and uh but the big um the big crisis really comes uh, and this is a crisis from the whole history of the church there's no other instance quite like it there are some things which are a little bit like it but um sergius in constantinople writes to uh the pope pope honorius and um uh, pope honorius seems to have and his predecessors at this point although the the monoenergism thing's been being cooked up in imperial circles for quite a while they either have been turning a blind eye to it or they they don't really know about it 
but at this point the 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 it's got sufficiently official that the emperors need to decide what they're going to do about the pope and uh, and it's sergius's job to try and to try and sort this out um now um uh one of the reasons that it's uh, a problem is that there's a monk in egypt called sophronius who when uh, cyrus turns up and starts promote and he's a chalcedonian monk and and, and when when um, when cyrus turns up and starts pushing this new government line of monoenergism to try and resolve the um try and resolve the uh, the crisis with the monophysites which is seen to have been uh, involved in the near destruction of the empire in the recent persian war um uh sophronius is like this this isn't on i mean this is you know if if uh, uh, you know, you're, you're taking away from the genuine humanity of Christ by saying that that there's no operation proper to his his human nature, um, uh, and 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 so although it's not an absolute formal repudiation of Chalcedon, it's 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 uh, it's all but uh, repudiating Chalcedon because it's it's conceding the central central point of the genuine the genuine character of his human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and they're annoyed by the Sophronius guy. They see him as a troublemaker. He goes all around the East trying to explain to people that this is no good and that we can't possibly accept this. Uh, this is selling the pass. And um, he's uh, he's he's so the government kind of decides that what they want to do is adopt a uh, policy of of making sure that monoenergism is on the table. That it's been accepted as a possible position that it's kind of known that the government favors it but they but then they'll just say um and and now we're just not going to talk about it anymore because they basically we've squared them and off sites there's no need to have any further theological discussion on the thing that's just going to cause more trouble so uh, so they want sophronius to shut up and they kind of are putting a lot of pressure on him to shut up and they're worried that the pope is going to hear about sophronius and and then 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 rome's going to denounce monoenergism and, and and it's going to cause another huge division um so that they, they kind of they they look as if they're going to get him to shut up and then he happens to go to jerusalem and uh they elect him patriarch of jerusalem so at that point all bets are off so sophronius is now patriarch of jerusalem and in the letter uh, announcing to um constantinople that he's been made patriarch of jerusalem he says i'm by the way monoenergism is completely rubbish and is a wicked heresy and a betrayal of Chalcedon and you can't tell me shut up now because I'm the patriarch of Jerusalem and uh, so so this is causing a um, this is causing a panic in imperial circles and uh, so they need to get the Pope on board so uh, so Sergius uh, writes to Pope Honorius and he says oh there's been all this trouble with this monk Sophronius and we're a bit worried about it it's not a big deal really you know and um what then happens is is a hugely contested question. Did uh, was Honorius spineless and decided to write back an ambiguous response in order to avoid trouble with the government? Was he a bit clueless and he didn't really understand what the argument was about? And if if you read the letter that he wrote back, it's it's kind of well. First of all, he's kind of like. Uh, Sergius is trying to push the we really just don't need to talk about this kind of thing because it just causes trouble line rather than the yay but not monoenergism line because he, he thinks that's going to cause too many alarm bells and he's clearly right because because um, 
uh, because uh, Honorius writes back saying, oh, monoenergism, oh, yeah, yeah, terrible idea, stupid, we don't want to talk about that, no, no, that's terrible, stupid expression, sounds very confusing and wrong. So so from that part of the letter, that would be not good from Sergius's point of view. But, but, um, but they've been working on a plan B, which is to say that there's no human will in Christ, mono, monotholitism, um, uh, and um, and and on this point, Honorius uh, gets all either gets confused or he's deliberately ambiguous because he's not being very courageous. It's not clear. Um, so he, uh, but he says he kind of covers himself. So so he says he says because. Uh, you know that that conflict that St Paul talks about, when you know it is not what I will, but not the good that I will, but the evil that I do not will that I will, uh, in Romans, that kind of conflict could never happen in Christ, right? So, so there's definitely only one will in Christ. Now, now by saying that, he clearly means that there's morally only one will in Christ, right? He's not claiming that Christ has no concupiscible appetite, right? He, he's not claiming that that that, that physically christ only has a divine will he's saying that the divine will and uh, the human will and the higher intellectual uh, appetite the the will in the strict sense and the lower sort of um, sensible appetite will in the broader sense uh, are, are always in harmony in christ that's what he's saying which is nothing to do with the question under discussion but he uses the expression one will and the, and that's good enough for the government um and uh, so the by which they mean that there's only the divine will in christ and there isn't any human will at all so they're like okay monoenergism didn't work that's fine we'll forget about that monotholitism Let's that's fine this yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and the um, and the uh, the 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 Monophysites will probably be perfectly happy with that anyway. As long as we compromise the uh, the integrity of the humanity of Christ, they'll in some way they'll be okay. Um, uh, so so the um, so so the government switches to Monophysitism with the approval of the Holy Bishop of Rome, Honorius, allegedly. Now. Um, uh, but of course, they they maintain the official stance of of this. They just want this on the table. And they they want to then ban discussion on the subject. So that that's the and uh, that's that's how they're hoping to get through it. And uh, uh, now in the meantime, um, uh, this is all the all the more urgent. Something is happening which is going to make it all the more urgent and then completely irrelevant. Um, which is that um, a a guy in a cave in Arabia claims that the angel Gabriel has been talking to him, and um, and he. Um, uh, and the angel Gabriel has been saying some very surprising things. <laughs> and, um, really? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Um, and uh, um, and uh, the Arabs, who hitherto have been completely not important, so the Arabs, like, they live in their big deserts with their goats, and they worship their idols, and and, and they, you know, do whatever it is they do, and nobody really cares that much. And the Romans and the Persians are not interested in invading their territory because they don't want to own a load of desert. Um, uh, and um, uh, and whenever there's any, and of course, as a result, the Arabs occasionally raid the the neighbouring territory of the Romans and the Persians because they can, because nobody's interested in. It was Tuesday. Them they down. were bored. Yeah, <laughs> um, and. Uh, and the Romans uh, occasionally, and probably the Persians as well, occasionally, you know, hire this or that group among the Arabs to to try and sort of 
keep the other Arabs out of the fringes of the empire on that side. But but they've never been something that people were worried about, you know. Um, in the same way that when the Canadians finally invade the US, you're going to get a big shock. Um, and uh, but the, Canadians um, are taking uh, Buffalo. <laughs> that's right justin trudeau is the new Mohammed. no um but uh the um uh so um uh but um yeah so uh but in the meantime while uh while this massive war to the death a totally exhausting war between the persians and the romans has been going on arabia has been being welded into a single military ideological civil unit by uh by Mohammed. And um, now exactly what the details of all this are is, is currently a matter of hot dispute because there are inconsistencies between what the non-Muslim sources report about what Muhammad did when he died and what he was up to and what he taught um, and uh, and what the Muslim sources say. And um, uh, and it's it's it would be, you know, another podcast entirely to, to talk about that. Um, but but whatever happens, definitely there was a guy and definitely he uh, he united Ara Arabia into a single political power uh, on the basis of some sort of Abrahamic monotheism of some kind whether it was supposed to be a kind of special kind of judaism for the ishmaelites so the arabs supposed to be descended from ishmael the mm -hmm. uh, elder half brother of um of jacob um uh not jacob i'm talking about isaac um and uh, the uh, <laughs> um uh, uh yeah the um so whether it was some kind of special ishmaelite Ishmaelite version of Judaism that then morphed into a new universal religion, or whether or not it was, as the Muslims now describe it, more or less from the beginning, is 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 a, is a difficult question. And there are some legitimate legitimate questions to be raised about that. And then there's also modern secular historians who can't believe that some kind of spiritual force could possibly have that much impact. Obviously. The spirits that are involved in the spiritual force, uh, from our point of view, are not the same spirits as the Muslims think are involved. Um, uh, but the, but uh, but anyway, um, uh, so so it's it, it's there's a lot of different metaphysical assumptions involved in the different accounts of what what happened on the part of secular historians, on the part of Christian historians, and on the part of Muslim historians. But anyway, who knows? Barry, it was uh, everyone can agree that Arabia was somehow united by a guy who said he was a prophet into a single um, political entity that was uh, unexpectedly powerful, uh, m mostly because people just weren't expecting them to turn up, and um, and because the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire was exhausted, and um, and then suddenly these Arabs pour into both the Persian and the Roman empires, and everything that Heraclius has done to restore the empire is swept away. In, uh, so Muhammad traditionally is said to, this is also disputed, but he's traditionally said to have died in 632. By the end of that decade, uh, Jerusalem is is once again out of the hands of the Romans and the Christians, and and, and poor old Sophronius has to watch while uh, while Islam takes over uh, over Jerusalem. And um, so obviously, um, uh, and again, the Arabs... Uh, favor or at least do not uh, no longer impose any civil penalties on because they couldn't care less about the difference between monophysites and chalcedonians so the arabs don't do anything to annoy uh specifically the monophysites 
So uh, once again, this thing is a problem. So, so in this period, uh, poor old Heraclius is extremely depressed. Apparently, he starts to become weirdly kind of agoraphobic and hydrophobic in the last years of his life because he's like brought victory back from the jaws of defeat in the most amazing way of all time, and now it's all turning into dust in his hands. Um, and um, he he shouldn't invent heresies, Heraclius, and then God won't get offended. But anyway, um, uh, and um, uh, so. Um, uh, so this this makes it seem much you know e even more important that they have to fix the monophysite problem um but and now with uh, with honorius's dodgy letter they have which was a big deal where obviously as you can imagine in the arguments about papal infallibility the vatican won it's the most is in some ways the most serious uh serious black mark against the doctrinal record of the popes um even though it's ambiguous, uh, but we'll get to why it's uh, part of why it's so serious. Um, but he, um, so anyway, so uh, at the very end of Heraclius's life in uh, 638, uh, they produced this document called the Ecthesis, uh, which is designed to, um, which is designed to allow monothelitism and impose silence as a sort of legal procedure. And um, uh, by this point, um, well, Honorius dies at the same time. Um, there's then a kind of confused period um, of, of popes being elected and not being confirmed yet by Constantinople and then dying. So there's a, there's a gap of a number of years. Um, Sergius dies, uh, Honorius dies, and, 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 um, and, and, and uh, Heraclius die, all in the, within a, a, a year or so of each other. And... Um, and uh, you've got to remember that at this point, the papal elections are quite complicated because since Justinian's time, they elect the guy, but then they have to send to Constantinople to make sure the emperor is okay with him. And then they ordain him to the episcopate. So it can be quite slow. And, um, uh, and the, um, so uh, uh, there's then also a succession crisis in Constantinople, which coincides with the confusion over the papacy because um, there's lots of internal nasty politics in Heraclius's family, partly because he marries his niece, which is a bit dodgy, and um, and she's not very popular. Um, and uh, and but anyway, it all ends up with um, with the emperor Constans II, as he's known. Although this is a bit of historical convenience because he wasn't really called that; he was called Constantine the Bearded. But we'll ignore that. Everyone calls him Constantine the Constans II. So 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 the emperor Constans II from four, from six four one is thoroughly established uh, as the emperor um and he uh, but on uh, whereas um his uh, his father uh, in the course of the uh, succession crisis had had been looking as if he might dump the whole monothelitism thing and even heraclius just before he died was kind of like saying to the popes uh, well you know i mean i kind of signed up to this but i'm not really don't really understand it and i don't want to cause any more trouble than we've already got but um but for some reason, Constance II has decides, no, this is it. This is the new line. This is what the emperor says, and you're going to accept it. And so Constance II, who reigns from uh, 641 until 668, he is, um, so quite a long reign, uh, he, is, uh, he becomes a real persecutor for monothelitism. And, and basically it seems to be because he just objects to the idea of the Pope presuming to object to uh, anything that the emperor comes up with, right? So he has a what they call a Cesaro-Papist view of um, 
of the uh, of, of the role of um, of the Byzantine emperor. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in 648, he produces something called the Tipos, uh, which is imposing legally monothelitism basically on the empire. Mm. And uh, and 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 Rome is is Rome again. Rome's reach is not great into the east, and uh, they quietly forget about Honorius. Um, Rome seems to have almost not even known about it because and you can understand why because it was a letter from Honorius to the Patriarch Constantinople it wasn't trumpeted by Honorius and sorry by uh, yeah Honorius um, and, uh, and and the letter itself as we've discussed is actually ambiguous but um, but uh, so so the the bishops of Rome are definitely not happy with monothelitism uh, as now clearly expounded, and uh, and now that uh, Constance II tries to impose it through this legal document, the Tipos, um, uh, uh, the Pope Martin the First, um, who is uh, Pope from six four nine until six five five, he uh, he takes a strident traditional papal line to this. So he uh, so the Tipos appears in six four eight, uh, and as soon as Martin the First is is Pope in uh, six four nine. He um, he summons the Lateran Synod, um, uh, which is um, uh, one of the most important councils held by the popes prior to the eleventh um, century, when they start summoning their own ecumenical councils in the West. Um, so he there's, there's uh, more than a hundred bishops from the whole of the Latin West are brought together to Rome, and uh, they they thoroughly denounce uh, these monophysite legal instruments, monothelite. Uh, um, legal instruments uh including of course the tipos and um and constance ii is absolutely furious and uh, he commands the exarch who's the kind of byzantine governor in ravenna to go to rome and and arrest the pope to stop him from doing this so the exarch goes to rome and the the synod is is in full swing and everybody is very strongly opposed to mon monothelitism and very enthusiastic about the functions and role of the pope and the exarch is like yeah i'm not going to do this i think i'm just going to leave this alone and given that i'm going to get into big trouble uh with the emperor for um not arresting the pope i might as well try and make myself emperor instead so he he tries to usurp the but he doesn't work he ends up dying um and uh so the um Did he so, come but, up with the plan at the pub <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they arrive in Rome, ready to arrest the Pope, and then they look around and think this isn't going to go down well. We could, we could face a sticky end here. Yeah, let's go to the bar and and you know, rethink. I got the idea. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Stay with me on this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but he it doesn't work out for him. He dies, but for, but it puts off the uh, um, attack on the Pope for the time being. But in five five three, um, uh, equipped with a new exarch who does what he's told, um, uh, Constance the second very uh, dramatically has the exarch go into St Peter's, grab the Pope, put him in chains in his own church, and drag him off physically as humiliatingly as possible to Constantinople. And Constance II does the kind of Henry VIII Elizabeth I trick, which is that he tries to dress up the theological quarrel as purely a matter of political obedience. So he says, well, you know, are you, there's not much evidence that you did very much 
to object to this previous exarch trying to usurp the throne from me. Therefore, you're clearly a traitor. And this has nothing to do with theology. We're arresting you for reasons of treason, which is, of course, rubbish. He didn't do anything to encourage the exarch or express any kind of support for him. Um, uh, but it's it's a clever way of, if you're trying to impose a shoddy theological compromise that you've invented on the back of an envelope for purely political reasons, whether it be monothelitism or Anglicanism, um, uh, one of the, one of your best strategies is to pretend that um, that your enemies are really just traitors and not and, not, and, and you're not attacking them for theological purposes. Um, so they drag Martin the first off to Constantinople. Uh, he's completely humiliated. They allow kind of you know baying crowds to throw throw filth at him and. You know, he's sort of left there in chains in the streets and all this kind of stuff. And he's put on trial for um, heresy. Sorry, not heresy, excuse me, quite the contrary, put on trial for treason. Um, and um, uh, the Patriarch Constantinople, when this, by the time this happens, is actually on his deathbed. And he's really miserable because, so so Constance the Seconds comes and tells him about it. And uh, there's been a whole kerfuffle uh, already because the previous patriarch uh, is gets deposed for political reasons um, uh, called um, uh, Pyrrhus and um, uh, and he, uh, he 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 having been deposed Pyrrhus goes off t uh, well um, he gets deposed for purely political reasons this is before the Lateran Synod um, and uh, the the em the Emperor wants the Pope to recognize the new patriarch called Paul and um, and and the Pope's not very on for this but he does suspect this patriarch who supported monothelitism of heresy so he says well you send him to me and I'll investigate him and see what what he's uh, see how sound he is and uh, uh, but in fact this patriarch has gone off into exile into North Africa where he meets this monk who's actually from Constantinople but lives in North Africa uh, Maximus the confessor as he will come to be known who is a who is a, a, a fierce uh, opponent of monothelitism and 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 uh, and um, meets the deposed patriarch in public debate and convinces him of the error of his ways so by the t and, and to go to rome and say sorry to the pope so by the time the deposed patriarch reaches rome he's actually a goody again um and he's uh, and and he's reconciled and he goes back um and he gets back into constantinople but then he dies um but this this poor guy is now patriarch constantinople by the time the arrest of martin happens but he's dying when um when uh when uh, um, Constance II comes to tell him that that they they ha oh, we've humiliated the Pope we've dragged him through the street the streets in chains and they're throwing they're throwing dog muck at him in the streets and jeering at him ha ha I've really got him on the run and this and 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 and, and Paul says but I'm I'm dying here I'm going to meet my maker in a few minutes and you're you're giving me this I'm going to have to explain this when I <laughs> so he's not happy and he clearly thinks he's beginning to worry about having supported Monopoly monothelitism as well um so like I've, I've i've accepted a shoddy theological compromise for political reasons and now apparently you're having crap thrown at the pope in my diocese and i'm gonna die in a few seconds thanks <laughs> and uh, so then um martin the first is taken off into exile where he dies uh more or less of well probably of ill treatment um in uh 555 
so um obviously rome uh, the, the latin west is 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 a bit nervous um uh, constantine not a very nice man apparently things are going very very badly with the arabs um uh, eventually by by the end of the century they've lost the whole of north africa as well and uh, the beginning of the following century they lose the uh, well they don't even own spain but the visigoths who control spain uh, lose spain to the um to the Muslims, and by 732, the Muslims have reached uh, uh, the Loire River in France, where they're driven back by uh, Charles Martel, the uh, commander of the Franks. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's kind of lots of military bad news, and Constance II seems to have been uh, unpopular anyway. So he decides he's going. He puts his son um, in charge of the capital and goes off. Uh, on a tour of the western provinces he goes to sicily and then he goes to uh italy and he goes to rome he's the first uh byzantine emperor to be is the last byzantine emperor to be in rome for a very very long time um i think uh I'm trying to remember i think the next one to actually enter the city of rome is probably john the fifth paleologos in the 14th century so so it's going to be a very very long time um <laughs> before a, an emperor from constantinople ever goes back to rome again but constance uh, ii goes to rome the the, the pope uh, the, the the now sitting pope is kind of like uh they're, they're a bit nervous they 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 haven't they haven't given in on monothelitism but they don't want the, the any of that happening again so it's not the most heroic moment that you sort of show him around you know there's the pantheon there's the Colosseum. Uh, here's a T-shirt. Um, uh, he's there for 12 days. And uh, he's respectful to the Pope. And the Pope is kind of cautiously respectful to him. And then he leaves. Um, and the and um, they actually, I think if I remember right, no, no, that's right, no. Anyway, I was going to say something. But there's, there's a, about a monument, but it's not It's not him. But the um, but uh, the one thing he does do to Rome is that he... Uh, He's he's basically there to steal precious metals, um, so that's why he's in Rome. Just going, oh, I always wanted to go and see Rome. I am, after all, Roman emperor. Yes, thank you for the T-shirt, Your Holiness. Um, but um, in the meantime, his guys are stripping the tiles off the roof of the Pantheon, um, and uh, uh, by the by this, <laughs> yeah, which uh, which by this point has been turned into a church. Um, uh, it's turned into a church by. By, uh, by the sixth, the, the Pope immediately after Gregory the Great. Um, in fact, that's where the Feast of All Saints originally comes from. Uh, the Pantheon was dedicated to Our Lady and All Martyrs, and the and the Feast of the Dedication, rededication of it as a church rather than a naughty pagan temple, um, uh, ends up becoming the the original Feast of All Saints. Although it's not on it's not on the first November, it gets moved. Um, but um, Yes. So he then goes back to Sicily and uh, and, and there's some uh, rumour that he's going to uh, make Sicily the capital of the empire instead of Constantinople. And uh, it may be that he died of natural causes, but it's often suspected that basically people were like, yeah, we're not having that look. You know, this is our purpose built capital. Uh, we're, we're being we're being mobbed by the Arabs and we're not having you abandoning us in our hour of need. And so look, here's a dodgy dish of whatever. And, and uh, so he, uh, he dies uh, in Syracuse. Um, and, um, and his, his son, Constantine, the fourth uh, becomes the emperor. Now he, by this point, 
Egypt and uh, the Levant are all gone to the Muslims. And there's no prospect uh, foreseeably in any time soon of them being reconquered by the Byzantines. And so basically, the monothelitism has now just become an albatross around the neck of, uh, of the emperor, because it's no use. It just irritates people, because uh, um, the first language Greek speakers uh, weren't interested in monophysitism so much by this point anyway, and the Latins hate it. Um, and uh, so we've now got a wonderful compromise deal, which is proving incredibly divisive, which is designed to reconcile a bunch of people who are being ruled by the Arabs anyway. So we don't even, so it's, it's pointless now. So, so, um, so Constantine the fourth decides that, that this thing has to be solved. So he sends away to the then Pope Agatho, who uh, becomes Pope in six, seven, eight, uh, and says, "Look, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to sort this out. Um, can you please, um, uh, can you please send some delegates to Constantinople, and we're going to, we're going to deal with this problem and uh, and end the schism." In fact, he doesn't actually write to Agatha; he writes to his predecessor. But by the time the letter arrives, the predecessor is dead, um, and Agatha has been elected. So this is again this this time lag problem with uh, with with imperial confirmation of, of papal elections and. Um, but uh, and and it causes some confusion because originally they think that uh, in Constantinople that the Pope is refusing to answer the letter. How dare he? And they start getting all annoyed about it. But but in the end, it gets sorted out, and they discover that it's because the Pope died in the meantime. And um, so uh, uh, the Pope gets little local councils to be held all over the West to confirm what the West thinks on this question. Um, and then he sends a bunch of delegates for once with people who can speak both Greek and Latin included in the delegation. In fact, uh, the, the Emperor Constantine IV uh, is quite insistent, you know, that, that there needs to be people who can actually speak Greek come because and we can't have this thing where the legate sits there wondering what the hell's going on and then turns out to be a disaster after the event, as has happened in the past. Um, so uh, so, so the, the, the delegates turn up. And um, and it wasn't he wasn't altogether clear in advance that this was going to be an ecumenical council, but anyway, it works out in the end. And uh, and they, and they 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 they, they begin uh, the 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 third council of Constantinople, um, and um, and it goes quite well. In fact, it's rather good humoured. Um, there aren't many councils so good humoured. Council of Florence in the fifteenth century was quite good humoured. Uh, like this um but um but they actually sort of get that they discuss it all and there's one of the eastern patriarchs uh, uh is 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 quite opposed to abandoning monothelitism but everybody else is kind of a bit fed up of it um and uh, they get out all the texts from the fathers and um and the uh, the, the patriarch of antioch who is um who, who, who's kind of trying to hold on to monothelitism? He 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 has his proof texts that are supposed to show that that the fathers agreed with monothelitism. But but the the um, the the Roman delegates and others other opponents are like this. Does this sounds a bit dodgy? And and they check and and they find that older manuscripts don't have the monothelite passages in them. So so it's it's been snuck in there. Um, and. Um, and they read out Agatho's statement on the subject, and they they gratify him with a, a repetition of the of, of the Chalcedonian moment. You know, Peter has spoken through the mouth of Agatho. They all shout. So, so you know, so it's, it's apparently a great moment for the popes. Um, and uh, so, so it looks like it's just going to be another papal march of triumph. You know, uh, the popes have held on to the true faith, and and um, 
So the naughty Byzantines have gone off and invented some silly heresy for political reasons, but we we kept firm and and now it's all being fixed. And um, but instead, uh, somebody says, yeah, but we only came up with this because of that letter by Heraclius and and the Roman the Roman delegates like what what letter letter by Heraclius uh, Heraclius uh, not Heraclius excuse me Honorius um, and uh, and they uh, and they and they um, and then, so they get out Honorius's dodgy letter. And uh, and they look over it and they're like, eh, yeah, that's not great. Um, and uh, now they could have argued, and this is very interesting. They could have argued that it was just ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and when the when uh, the Pope later on confirms the acts of Constantinople three, uh, he condemns Honorius in in his confirmation. But he the way he phrases it is that Honorius was negligent and allowed heresy to flourish. Mm-hmm. When he shouldn't have done, uh, whereas um, whereas uh, the council itself just basically ch- outright charges um, Honorius with heresy, and you'll get people who are very kind of ultramontane and want to have papal infallibility extend to every last little document, who are very touchy about this question and they want to vindicate Honorius, but it's it, it's it's really not possible because um, not only does um, so, so I agree. I would agree with the 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 as it were hypermontanists that um, uh, that the um, the the letter itself is quite ambiguous, and you could try just take if you took the letter in isolation, you could try to argue that he wasn't guilty of heresy. But the problem is that the, the Third Council of Constantinople judges him guilty of heresy, and it, it judges him infallibly. You know, this is in its infallible statements, mm-hmm. guilty of heresy. Um, and uh, he um, uh, now, um, and not only that, but all, but then uh, the next three ecumenical councils, if I got the numbering right, perhaps it's just the next two, yeah, the next two ecumenical councils, uh, Nicaea two and Constantinople four, they reiterate the condemnation of Honorius uh, quite clearly. Constantinople four is partic- particularly unambiguous. Um, and uh, at the end of the council, they have these sort of acclamations, um, you know, when they sort of enthusiastically repeat the highlights of the council. They did this at Trent. So, um, uh, they, they, so they things like, to our God-fearing emperor, you know, long years, etc., etc., to all heretics, anathema, etc., etc. And uh, in the course of these acclamations... Um, uh, they shout out to the heretic Honorius, anathema! Right, so they both anathematize him in the council, but they also just call him the heretic Honorius in the acclamations and anathematize him at the end of the council. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that he's been judged by an infallible authority to have been guilty of heresy. So, so I mean, I don't, I don't and in fact, for for some centuries, popes uh, and 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 people voting in papal elections had to swear an oath that they anathematized Honorius. Um, uh, prior to participating in the election, so really to claim that he wasn't really guilty isn't really. I mean, you, as I say, you could make a case based on the letter on its own, but but the count, but an ecumenical council has decided what what it thinks of that letter, and clearly it must have thought that the letter was deliberately wishy washy and ambiguous in order to um, possibly avoid trouble. But anyway, I mean, he 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 allowed heresy to be propagated in order to avoid trouble. And, and I mean, you could argue that simply still constitutes mm-hmm. being guilty of heresy in itself. But uh, so um, so it, it ends up being the only ecumenical council that has ever condemned a pope as a heretic. And uh, and Rome does confirm it. 
So, so the monothelite crisis is concluded, probably uh, less because of the implacable opposition of all the popes apart from Honorius, um, more because the fact that the Muslims kept winning all the battles, so it didn't really matter anymore. Um, but uh, the monophysite uh, thing is uh, silly compromises discarded, um, and the, the uh, and the um, and Pope Honorius is condemned, and and so in a way, because no, there aren't really any monothelites anywhere in the world, as far as I know, anymore. Um, uh, it's one of these things that existed only for political reasons. People often say the Church of England would just cease to exist if it was disestablished, because there would be no opportunities to have tea with the Queen and and things like that. For, for so no one would be interested anymore in being an Anglican. They'd go off and follow in actual conviction theological positions instead um uh, so 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 monothelitism has, has evaporated um uh so in in a way the the, the most abiding uh the most abiding i mean you know it, it, it you know confirmed important christological points uh but the most abiding legacy of it is is the principle that in that, that a pope uh notwithstanding standing papal infallibility can in matters less than solemn definitions err as seriously as to be condemned as a heretic and anathematized by an ecumenical council so so it, it provides the limit case for the study of papal infallibility i'm sure so, we'll hear yeah. that again in vatican one <laughs> yes the other side i think Delvin writes about it in his controversies of the papacy oh right yes yes well uh, yes i'm not sure what he concludes on that question I know um, he the, writes the, about it. I can't. Remember, I don't have it to memory yeah, yet, but yeah, yeah, I know he does. Maybe I'll look at it. And I'll photo whatever he has as the. Of course, some of these things that uh, Saint Robert Bellarmine uh, talks about, uh, he doesn't have as extensive documentation as has been accumulated in the intervening centuries. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, Bellarmine can't always be held responsible for all of his conclusions on these questions because he, uh, because he doesn't. Um, He's not looking at the same texts as we are, but yeah, I mean, I it may turn out, you know, 200 years from now, they'll think that the texts that we think are authentic are spurious, and the ones that Bellamine thought were authentic are, are, the, are the only sound ones. And then, then he, but, but, but I think um, in questions of mere fact, uh, we, we have to follow, um, follow the historical discussion to some extent, um, as opposed to the actual doctrine, where obviously um, Bellamine's judgment trumps any of ours. Definitely mine. <laughs> well, Doc, I appreciate it again. Thank you. We'll see you guys next time for the seventh ecumenical council, which is the second council of Nicaea. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> we would throw it in today, but again, we we got we got to eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> talk to you later, bud. Bye bye.